Well, good evening. Welcome to Wednesday Night Community. Uh, so glad that you are here this evening. Uh, as we always say, and hopefully you, you, you know this by now if you've been a part of this uh, fairly informal evening, uh, feel free to get up during, during, the, um, during the time tonight and grab some coffee or cookies or snacks or whatever in the back here as we go for the rest of the evening to keep yourself going at the sometimes the end of a long day man you just need a little bit of something to keep going so middle of the week and falls here and fall weathers here the leaves do you love the leaves that are turning i'm like so excited for that i just i i love it i don't like what follows fall but i that's winter but i like fall that's pretty great so um can i ask our ushers to to come forward this is for timberline uh family members uh, we do our tithes and offering on our um, uh, midweek service here so if you're a timberline family member thank you for giving we've already prayed you can pass those plates um real quickly want to make one announcement of something that um I want to encourage you to, to, to think about picking up, especially if you're in the market for a new Bible. Uh, this last month, a, a new Bible just came out. Uh, Zondervan's NIV Study Bible. They, they've had one for years, but they just completely built this new one from the ground up. Uh, D.A. Carson, who's just a fabulous scholar, was the general editor for it. He and about 60 other contributors uh, built, like, I think it's 20,000 all-new verse-by-verse study notes in there. Uh, it's full color. There's pictures. There's book introductions. There's chapter or uh, section introductions, like, to the Psalms or to the Gospels, that sort of thing. And it's just such a good study Bible. There's a lot of good study Bibles out there. This one's brand new, and I just picked it up, and it's, I'm really, really impressed by it. So if maybe you're looking for a gift to get someone for Christmas time, I would encourage you to grab one of these. Or again, you yourself, if you're saying, yeah, I could, I could use actually a study Bible that has really good, trustworthy study notes in there. This is a good one. My only, my only hesitation, my only complaint with it is it's massive. It, it is literally five pounds. It, it's just huge. And I, my only um, regret, this is like standard print. It's like tiny. So get large print, like seriously, even if you read fine, get larger print because it's like normal print. But the thing is huge. Um, I think because of that, uh, what they're doing is they're offering a, a free digital copy with every purchase. So you can, you can get a digital copy on your iPhone or um, uh, iPad or uh, whatever sort of smart phone or smart device that, that you use. So really encourage you to take a, take a look at it. It's a great, great resource. Um, in a series, looking at frequently asked questions, uh, common questions that people in our community that we ourselves oftentimes ask about Jesus, about, about Christianity. We've, looked, we've talked about things like exclusivity, kind of the narrowness. How can you really only say there's one way? Um, what about injustice? Hasn't the church been responsible for uh, much injustice in the past? And does that um, kind of dismiss the... Um, the veracity of the Christian claims or what about the existence of hell? Does that make God kind of just a, a uh, evil, angry, mean you know, landlord or a, a Gestapo guard or an angry judge, something along those lines? And, and tonight we're looking at one that, that kind of could, could be applied to all of them. It's, it's doubt, doubt. And so we're going to be looking at this idea. And, of course, doubt can come from all of these other frequently asked questions, depending on how, how you walk through. But specifically tonight, I want to look at this idea of what, how do we respond to doubt? Because all of us have it in our life. So take a look at this quick video here to kind of introduce tonight's topic. 
did somebody die for my sins if I wasn't even born? You know, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You know, to me it doesn't. You know, and those are part of the questions that I have. Hi, my name is Bo. I was born and raised in New York. I am a tremendous Yankee fan. I believe in, you know, being married and loving my wife as much as I can. I have three outstanding, outstanding children. I'm Italian. I don't know what to do with my hands. My dad was a New York City police officer from the time I could basically reach his waist was the time he started to use me as a punching bag. There's no way there could be a God because of all the things that have happened to me. I have memories of uh, attempting to hang myself when I was a kid in the garage because I was just tired of getting beat up by my dad. You know, why have I had six surgeries on my right shoulder, one on my left? Why can I not work anymore? Why do I have to deal with depression and severe anger? There's no reason that I could be going through all of this if there was somebody watching over me. How can I believe in something that, to me, is non-existent? You know, he's never sat down for dinner at my house. You know, I've never seen him walking around the streets, you know. Um, I, I believe that, you know, people believe in what they want to believe in. You know, I believe more in you guys than I do in God because you're here with me today. I think people that believe wholeheartedly you know that put God before their children and no offense to anybody but people that put God before their children are seriously missing something in their lives because I don't think I could ever put anybody before my children or my wife one thing I have a hard time with is um, somebody or something loving me unconditionally other than my wife and my children I, I showed up at Life Center for, uh, for unfortunately, for Olivia Chaffin's um, funeral. And uh, I went up to the front desk and asked if there was another pastor I could speak to. And I was introduced to Sean Stone, Pastor Sean. And um, the best thing, to, the best way I can describe Sean is he's never judged me. You know, he never, he, he never turned a shoulder to me or a blind eye to me because my beliefs were 100% different than hers. Uh, he was willing to work with me. He was willing to answer any questions I had. And um, because of this, um, my beliefs are growing in God and church. And uh, I've also, be, you know, grew a very strong friendship with Sean, or I hope I did. He still hasn't mowed my lawn, but I'm hoping that day will come. Um, so because of Sean and because of his non-judgmental ways, I am starting to believe in something that you couldn't convince me there was. Do I believe in God? It's, it's a toss-up at this time. Doubting is a normal experience for every single believer, I would suggest. And, and while that's true, I think it's also been true oftentimes that in the church we haven't always done the best job at making room, making space for people who, who have honest doubts, who have questions, who have problems with some of the content, who, who have problems with some of the coherence of the ideas or, or are struggling through these different areas. Um, 2011. The Barner Group, George Barner started this, and then uh, a few years ago he sold the company to David Kinnaman. Um, the Barner Group 
did a, did a, a study where they looked at reasons why the millennial generation, the younger generation, is, is tending to leave the church, tending to rethink faith. And one of the reasons that that was listed in this, uh, it was called Six Reasons Young Christians Leave the Church. And one of those reasons was listed that the church is not seen or experienced as a safe place to have doubts. And some of the language that that, that was um, expressed by those who, who were being surveyed was this. Um, 36% of those who were, who were surveyed, over 1,000 young people, um, and these are Christians, they said that they did not feel permission to, quote, ask their most pressing life questions in church. Uh, 23% of that same, of, of the larger group, felt as though they could not express significant intellectual doubts about their faith. And so this lack of space that is oftentimes in Christian communities, church communities, for doubt, leads to very obvious struggle. It leads to kind of turning some of those thoughts inward and, and living with sometimes a lot of guilt, sometimes walking away a lot of different things. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel according to John. Um, I'm going to read the entire chapter of chapter 20, so it's a bit of a long passage. Uh, but if you have your Bibles or smartphones or whatever, turn those on. And John chapter 20, this, this is the account of the empty tomb. This is toward the end of John's gospel. And he writes this in verse 1 of chapter 20. He says, early on the first day, this is Sunday, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, so it's still early, early morning, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put them. Grave robbery was a very common thing in this day. It was a serious thing. It was a capital offense within the Roman Empire. So this is the natural thought that Mary has. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked into, looked into it at the strips of linen laying there, uh, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. He's painting a picture of saying, it's, it's not like it's just been unwrapped. If you were stealing a body, most likely you wouldn't take time to unwrap it. Remember when Lazarus, Jesus uh, resuscitates him, he comes out of the tomb and he has to be unwrapped. There are spices in between the wrappings. What he's saying is that the headpiece is where the head was. The linen is where the body is. So it's almost like it just disappeared, like a balloon that has been collapsed. All of the linens are laying as they were previously. Um, finally, the other disciple who had reached him first also went inside. He saw and believed. This is, this is John. He saw and believed. It says they still did not understand from Scripture, though, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? She answers, they have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. 
We know it's early in the morning. Could have been that it was still very dark. Maybe her eyes were filled with tears. But for some reason, she doesn't recognize. Maybe she looks and turns right back. But she's not recognizing this as Jesus. He asks her, woman, same question. Why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, she's still working on the assumption that his body has been stolen or moved. Tell me where you have put him. I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, one word, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not continue holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Instead, go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she said. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, so now this is Sunday evening, within, uh, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, they're still afraid that their same fate could potentially be the same as Jesus's. So they're locking themselves away. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Shalom. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. In his side, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Uh, verse 24. Now, Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, this is one of the 12 apprentices of Jesus that he chose, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So apparently this is the twelve minus Judas and minus Thomas. So the others disciples so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he answered them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. So they've seen the risen Lord. They're still living in fear, still living in fear of what, what exactly uh, their future could hold. Jesus came and stood among them. Doors are locked, but he's all of a sudden there. And he says again, peace be with you. And then he singles Thomas out and he says, put your finger here. And he showed him his hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. And then he says, stop doubting and believe. Jesus said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed or will believe. And then the very end, uh, Jesus performed many other signs, John says, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe. There's that key word there again, that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, this text, which is about the event, which is arguably the most significant event in, in all of the Bible, in all of world history, which is the resurrection. This is the most significant thing that has ever happened. You know, we talk about this before we say this, this, this resurrection thing is when new creation started breaking out. Um, this, this text, it's teeming with belief and doubt. 
there's this tension of belief and doubt. There's this dance of belief and doubt in this, in this text. Now, the initial question that we might have as we read this text is why didn't the students of Jesus immediately believe that he has been resurrected? I mean, think about it. Jesus has been with him for three years. His, his, his predictions about his death and resurrection, though vague they started out, became more clear. Over time, these illusions that he was making, he made them again and again, multiple times before going to the cross. Why didn't they believe? And the answer is plausibility of belief. Plausibility. Here's what I mean. These Jews lived in what we now consider Palestine. They're surrounded by Hellenism, by the Hellenistic world. And by that, I mean the Greco-Roman culture, language, worldview. This is what they're surrounded by. So any outside influence... The Greco-Roman idea would have laughed at the concept of bodily resurrection. They had a low view of the body. This is why in Acts chapter 17, when Paul starts talking to them, and and they kind of like this Jesus thing, and then he gets to the resurrection, and they just go, it's ridiculous. Of course not. They had a very low view of the body. So there's no influence there. Further, this is also part of their plausibility structure, their worldview. Jews, you think about Jews, there are four sects of Jews. There are the Pharisees. There are the Sadducees, there are the Essenes, and then there are the Zealots. Those make up all of the Jewish people who live in the area. Now, the, the Sadducees are the only ones who think bodily resurrection is ridiculous. Absolutely outright rejected. The other three, the vast majority of Jews, came to believe that one day God would resurrect each individual person with a renewed, perfected physical body. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. As he, he talks about this Jewish understanding of the bodily resurrection. Now, what's, what's so crazy though, is every Jew, every Jew who believed in the resurrection, believed two things about it. They believed that it would be universal, meaning it would happen to everyone at the same time. And it would happen at the end of history. This is why if you go back to this same book, I, uh, I think it's chapter 11, when Jesus goes to Lazarus, Lazarus has died, Mary and Martha, these two sisters are there, and he talks to him, and he says to Martha, one of the sisters, he says, your brother's going to live again. And, and she brings up the common Jewish understanding. She goes, sure, sure, yeah, I know that at the general resurrection at the end of time, but that's not what I'm worried about. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. So this idea that one man would be resurrected apart from everyone else and that would happen in the middle of time and not at the end of time, plausibility structure. They had no category for that. There's no way they could have invented that. There's no way they could have even wrapped it. That's why they have such a hard time wrapping their mind around it. Because they go, but it's not supposed to work this way. It's supposed to happen to everyone at once and at the end of time. This is one person and it's in the middle of time. It doesn't seem to Makes sense. Now, a side note here real quickly. Oftentimes you will, you will hear people say things like, well, of course, of course these people believed in miracles, uh, virgin birth and resurrection and all that sort of stuff. These are pre-modern, they're pre-scientific, pre-enlightenment people. They believe tons of silly stuff. They're, they're, they're not sophisticated. They're not enlightened like we are. Well, the first thing you know, we need to say, we've, we've used this phrase before, um, C.S. Lewis who understood the classic literature well, he, and he was in the middle of the 20th century where that was the biggest push of liberalism, is to have this kind of ethnocentric uh, post-enlightenment arrogance of like, oh, we're so you know, 
sophisticated, we're so knowledgeable. He said, well, that's just chronological snobbery. It's ridiculous to think that pre-modern people didn't have enough, they didn't know how babies were made. Or that, or that they didn't know that when a person dies, they tend to stay dead. Right? It doesn't matter how uneducated you were. In fact, in this text, who, who would be the most uneducated person in this text? It would be Mary. She's a woman. She wouldn't, she wouldn't have had the normal training. Now, Jesus, amazingly, taught her, which rabbis didn't do that, but she wouldn't have had formal training. So she's the most uneducated of them all. And she has two angels talk to her about it. She sees an empty tomb, and she still thinks it's got to be a naturalistic explanation. It's grave robbery. Okay? This, these are not unsophisticated, stupid people. <laughs> They're intelligent, pre-modern, certainly, intelligent people. So that... That sort of idea is just as kind of a, a side note here. Now, here's what I want us to see about the characters in this text, specifically as it relates to this idea of doubt. And, and more personally for us, how do we navigate living with doubt? Because we do, if we were honest, in our faith. Think about the different characters. Who are the different characters in this? Well, there's Mary, uh, John and Peter, um, later Thomas, and then the other ten Disciples. So we've got numerous different people, and what's so fascinating about the text is how they all have slightly different responses to the claim, to the experience, different um, interactions with it. Now, many Christians believe that, that people who experience doubt uh, simply lack kind of enough evidence, or they lack kind of the proper uh, evidence or really deep you know, conviction, but Doubt is much more nuanced, and those of us who have experienced doubt, we know that. Doubt is much more nuanced. It's much more of a slippery experience than that. There are many variables that come into play when we experience doubt. Uh, David Kinnaman wrote a book entitled, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church and Rethinking Faith. And he offered, from this research, primary research-based book, he offered at least five different factors that he had identified as influencing doubt. Let me give you those here. He said, these are the five things that in our, our research had something to do with why people begin to, to doubt previously held beliefs. The first one is personality. We'll talk about a couple of these. We'll kind of see these come up. I'm not going to go into in-depth in each one of them. Uh, two is lack of fulfillment. Third one is notions about certainty, certainty of, of, of belief. Uh, number four, rational, I'm sorry, relational alienation. Alienation. And number five, mental health. Now, think about just one or two of these with me. Okay, just as, we, as you think about yourself and the, the role, the influence of these factors or variables in your life as it relates, as it relates to doubt. Think about the first one, just personality. Okay. Your personality is shaped by at least, we don't know, you know to what degree, but the old nature and nurture thing, right? Nature, which is to say you're, you're kind of hardwired a certain way. You have, you have kind of just natural bents. If, you know, I've got four kids and I'm seeing each one of these kids grow up and they just, I mean, we're, we're kind of trying to parent them largely the same. Or at least we start out, you know, that way. But they just have these natural bents, these natural inclinations. They think differently. They respond differently. They feel differently. They relate differently. So there's this natural aspect to how they're hardwired. But then there's also nurture. Family of origin. Much of your personality is a result of your family of origin, how, how you 
uh, how you learned to trust, how you saw conflict handled in your home. Um, I've got a friend who, who sh- struggles immensely with doubt, but worse than that, experiences deep guilt over the doubt. Um, and I would suggest it's largely because of their personality. But this is the same personality that loves mathematics. It's the same personality that will probably lead this person, they're a younger person, into some sort of engineering, I would guess. Because they're brilliant at it. They're, their personality naturally leans that direction. And with that, they have these questions in their mind. They have an approach. They have filters they have a, that my sibling doesn't have, my mom doesn't have. My, and I start to think, something's wrong with me. Why can't it just be easy? Like, it's easy for them. Why am I asking these sorts of questions? Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 Paul views this reality that, that, that there's a personality gift diversity as a God-given thing. Let me, let me read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. He says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, then helping, uh, of guidance of different kinds of tongues. And then he asks rhetorical questions about all of them. Are all apostles? Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Of course, the answer is no. Each one is different. He's using this picture of, the, of a you know, biological organism which has different faculties and aspects and components to it. And, he's, and he says, you know, now eagerly desire gifts, eagerly desire to have your strengths, your strong you know, places, but they're not going to be the same as everyone else. So Paul seems to say, God views this as a beautiful tapestry of his creation. The fact that you approach your faith in Jesus slightly different than someone else approaches their faith in Jesus, it's not a bad thing. That's how you're hardwired. That's, that's a part of your nurturing. So we see that even in our own lives. Um, let me mention the last one in here, the, the mental health one, just because oftentimes people kind of go, wait, what's that about? Um, according to David Kinnaman, uh, about one out of every four Uh, adults in the United States suffers from a diagnosable mental disorder. Now, of that 25%, only about 6% of that um, are seriously ill in any way. Uh, We we know about clinical depression that is extremely widespread would fall into this this category. Uh, Poor mental health, among other things, just wrecking oftentimes people's lives and relationships, It can plant seeds of doubt that are soul-crushing in people's lives. Uh, This this week I was reading a um, CNN report, which was really interesting, and it it was talking about uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders, OCD. And it was was mentioning there's there's this not very well-understood subcategory um, underneath OCD, which, which they call scrupulosity. Isn't that a great word? Scrupulosity. Um, scrupulosity literally means fearing sin when there is none. And even the article was saying even people who aren't religious and who have OCD and are, are, are in the smaller group can experience scrupulosity, um, even if they're not religious. But it's basically this f- fear of, of morally transcending or offending Others and that weighing on a person's uh, on a person's conscience. And in this case, the person battles doubt 
that they're really accepted by people. Or they battled out that God could really love me because, well, I'm not getting it exactly right. I'm not doing this. And, and, and there's this compulsion um, to do certain things because they're obsessed with these thoughts. And sometimes they equate thoughts with actions. Well, I've thought it, therefore I must be guilty of it. Or I've wondered about it, therefore God must be disappointed with me. Now, that's, that, that's an extreme case, but I would suggest, in a sense, it's a continuum. We've all been there at times, just to one degree or another, where we start feeling guilt. In fact, the Bible says this is a, it's not just a psychological thing, it's a spiritual reality. The Satan... Satan means the accuser. The accuser, the Satan in Scripture, is called just that for that reason. He's the accuser of those who say, I've thrown my life in with Christ. That he comes to you and say, well, he doesn't really love you like a child. You're not really fully accepted. Remember this time? Remember that? That's this whole idea of the role that the accuser plays in our life. So here's the question. What do we do with our doubts? Um, I want to walk through. I want to give you eight Again, this is not exhaustive. It's, it, it's just it's thoughts, it's reflections on what do we do when we have these doubts in our life. And I'll walk through eight of them real quickly. The first thing is doubt your doubts. Um, you have to realize that a doubt is just a new belief, right? A doubt is a rival belief that has come up to push up against a previously held belief. But... Why do we naturally assume that a new belief, what it is that's causing us to doubt, should trump the previously held belief? So if it's good to to doubt your beliefs, you have to be consistent. Doubt your doubts. Again, that's, that's simple, but oftentimes we sort of unthinkingly assume if we have a doubt that somehow carries more weight than a previously held conviction or belief. Um, Second one. Bring your doubts honestly before God. You know, King David in the Old Testament, remember this is the guy who's called a man after God's own heart, right? This, uh, this is a guy who is deeply loved by God. There's this Davidic covenant that he makes with him through you. Uh, one of your descendants will sit on the throne at all times. So he's a, he's a man who's after God's own heart. He's a friend of God. And yet, read some of the Psalms written by David. He struggles with doubt. He begins to question, God, do you really care about me? Do you really love me? Are you really going to provide for me? So he, he brings his doubts right to God. And he's very, very honest with it. Job is another example. Job doubts God's love in a, in a very pointed way to God. It's not to other people. Like, yeah, I think it's a chance. He's talking to God. David's talking to God when he's bringing up these doubts that, that, that he has. And see, as we confess our doubts and, and ask the questions that kind of rise up within us through different means and things, I would suggest when we do it in front of God, it's actually expressing faith. Think about that. When you do it in front of God, you bring your deepest questions and concerns to him. You communicate that he's able to handle them. That's a huge act of faith. When you bring your doubts to God and you're just honest to him, that is a huge act of faith. And that's why God smiles. That's why God does not condemn people who say, I'm I'm frustrated, God. I don't get this. Do you even care about me? Do you know? That's why those are in the Bible, even, even those Psalms. See, we see that as Thomas confesses his doubt, even there, Christ is... 
Christ is so willing to show up and to present himself in the very manner, in the very way that Thomas needs to believe. He responds. He doesn't just rebuke him. He actually comes through. Third thing, allow your doubts to push you to search for answers. Um, Frederick uh, Beechner, who was a theologian, um, a minister, he said this. I love this line. He says, if you don't have doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. He says, doubts are ants in the pants of faith. Let me say that again. Doubts are ants in the pants of faith. I've always wanted to say ants in the pants from the pulpit and finally found a way to do it. He said, they keep it alive and moving. Isn't that cool? Doubts keep your faith alive and moving so that it's not stagnant in any way. See, these kinds of questions, along with any questions that arise out of our doubts, they send us on a journey. They push us. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about seeking and knocking and asking, didn't he? He said that's, that's a spiritual virtue to seek and knock, uh, knock on a door, to seek, to ask questions. But that's what doubts can do. They don't always. If, they, if you're just stealthified, if, you're just, if you just sit down and you, and you stop searching. But doubt can be a wonderful motivator to say, I need to figure this out. And it actually gives you some fuel in that way. Um, when, when we faithfully walk that, that path of doubt that, that we see before us, I would suggest that we find that it leads us toward the home of truth. It leads us to the Father. Number four, put feet to your faith. Um, many of the deepest, tru- deepest truths of Christianity become clearer when we act on them. Um, in doing, often believing seems to make more sense. Um, John chapter 7, just earlier, same book, Jesus said this. Jesus answered, and he said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. He's saying to the Father, I'm representing him. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. What he's saying is, explore, put it into practice. This is testable. If you do, if you, if you put what I'm saying into practice, you'll find out if it's true or not. See, Jesus is saying that you can explore and test his teachings. Here's his test. Here's his uh, challenge to us. Try putting into practice Jesus' teachings and see if it doesn't work. Um, If you could find a better way to live, I think Jesus would be the first one to tell you to take it. But he doesn't know of a better way to live than what he's taught. So try try putting into into practice James 1.22. Jesus' half-brother who who writes the book of James. James 1.22, James encourages other Christ followers to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Um, You know, this is why I've heard Pastor Mark Orphan, who runs our missions department here, this is why I've heard him always say, we want to get people who are exploring faith, who are kicking the tires of faith, we want to get them on a missions trip. And some people have kind of pushed back and not like, whoa, what do you tell? No, we want to make sure that they can sign, you know, these belief statements where they go. He goes, no, 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 not at all. Not at all. We want to get people who are there. And he's, and he's told stories of people who have gone on a missions trip. And when they come back, they say things like this. You know, when I went on this trip, I didn't, I didn't really believe in God. But then I saw what you were doing. I saw what we were doing. And I thought, I want to follow this Jesus. 
There's something about doing because it's true that you realize this is right. This is good. This is true. This is beautiful. So do. Number five. Seek commitment or you could say conviction, not certainty. Um, Certainty is is a state of mind. Conviction and commitment are different things than that. Let me read for you if I can. Uh, J.P. Moreland in a in a book that that came out here recently reflecting on the life of Dallas Willard the impact that he's had on so many people different authors contributed to this book and in one section he writes this about it JP Moreland who's a philosopher out of Talbot he says when we seek knowledge of god you know and he goes on to say what or you know what does the bible text mean or a certain you know moral ideas he said we should not assume that our search requires reaching a state with no doubt no plausible counterarguments. No possibility of being mistaken. When people believe that knowledge requires certainty, they will not recognize that they have knowledge if they lack certainty. In turn, this will lead to a lack of confidence, a lack of courage regarding one's ability to count on the things one knows. He says, I'm not suggesting that certainty is a bad thing, not for a second. I'm merely noting that it is not required. He said, in the spiritual life, we are after confidence, not certainty. Now think about this. In most other things that we have, um, I have, I have friends in my life. Do I have certainty? Do I have absolute psychological certainty that, that my friends are not you know, in this big conspiracy and, you know, they're really you know, going to try to use me. And No, but I have no good reason to assume that. I have confidence. I have confidence that, that, that my friends really are my friends. Um, so we, we never act with certainty. So why would we require that when we come to this idea of following Christ? We oftentimes will not have certainty. It's a wonderful thing. But it, again, it's not, it's not needed Confidence is what Christ calls us to. Conviction is what Christ calls us to. Uh, Let me give you a sixth one here. Take an inventory of your reservations. Um, When you're experiencing doubt, when you're experiencing reservations about, about your beliefs, don't simply put things on hold and assume it will all go away. That's a naive and foolish thing to do. Don't just assume that all of these intellectual robots or questions or whatever they might be will just sort of disappear over time as you give them time. Take an inventory in order to, to discern, to figure out what, what are the specific reasons for your reservations. Uh, Tim Keller, who, who's written the book, uh, The Question of God, we've, that's sort of been a launching uh, resource for this whole series that we're doing here. We've talked about that in previous weeks. Tim Keller talks about this. He says, any, anytime you're going to do kind of like an inventory of, okay, I, I want to believe, I want to give my life to God, or I want to trust more, but there's this like reservation, he goes, figure out why. And he gives kind of three, three tests or three categories, three filters, where he says this, is it a content issue? Meaning, um, are there any parts of the Christian message, maybe it's creation, Maybe it's sin. Uh, Jesus is divine, that he's God. Maybe it's the cross. Uh, maybe it's the resurrection that you just you don't agree with or you, you don't understand. And he says, or is it, a, is it a coherence issue? 
which is to say, are there still doubts and objections to the Christian faith that you just can't resolve? Is it a knot that you just can't undo? Is it a coherent? It just doesn't seem to be coherent. Or is it a cost issue? This is much more of a personal one. Do you perceive that a move into full Christian service, giving your life fully to Christ, will cost you something dear and you fear losing that? Because that can cause doubt too. And he says, figure out what it is so that you can, again, work on those things. So you could take those things to God. Number seven, do it all in the context of Christian community. Um, this is huge. Um, this should never, this whole process, this should, this should never be done by yourself. Almost everything. Think about everything that you learn. If you learn a new language, um, if you're learning a new skill, they're always learned best in a community of others who were at different stages along the process of, of their own pilgrimage with Christ. Um, and you need to have people that you can talk to, that you can uh, talk through this with, people who maybe have gone through this already and they share wisdom with you. Um, talk to Christians who have, yes, I've dealt with doubt. Here's, kind of, here's some of the ways that I have walked through some of it. Um, David Kinnaman says, unexpressed doubt is one of the most powerful destroyers of faith. You know, like when, you, when it's hidden, when you isolate it. At best, at best, you'll have a really shallow, shallow faith that'll be skin deep only. Because see, there's an isolating element. If, if, if you kind of go, yeah, I've got these doubts, I've got these questions, I don't feel safe doing it, I don't feel safe talking about it, I don't know how to do it, what you'll do is you'll tend to isolate. You'll tend to turn all those things inwardly, um, all these uh, unexpressed doubts. And um, what you'll tend to do is you'll feel compelled to pretend. You'll feel compelled to put on, to, to act like you believe or to act like you don't have questions, to act like you have certainty, but you won't. And again, it'll create a skin deep faith. Um, one of the most widely known and respected Christians of this last century is Mother Teresa. She was known as just a 19-year-old girl. She went to Calcutta, India. And she served you know, what Jesus called the, the least of these. Uh, those in poverty, those sick, those dying. She spent her whole entire life there. And um, she's a person who we, we all look to to this day as a person who showed great love. Who modeled Christ, taking care of basic needs. What, what wasn't necessarily known uh, during her lifetime was that her life was one marked by a lot of darkness, a lot of loneliness, a lot of doubt. Now, she never doubted that God existed, but she spent a lot of her life doubting, do you really love me? Do you really care? Are you really going to provide for me? Um, kind of curious about God's absence. I know he's I know he is, but why isn't he closer? In fact, um, in a series of letters that she wrote, they were published after after her death. Uh, there's a book entitled Mother Teresa. Come be my light. The private writings of the saint of Calcutta. Um, and we get kind of for the first time some of her confessions. And these words resonate with people who have struggled with doubt. One confession. She wrote this. Darkness, darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason, the place of God in my soul is black. There is no God in me, 
When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. The torture and pain I can't explain. And so many people said, I wish I would have known that she struggled with this before while she was alive. Why? Because it gives me hope that I'm not a weirdo. Something's not you know, broken with me. Everyone, Mother Teresa, struggled with it. The dark night of the soul, as Christians have called it. And she serves as a model of someone who had enormous faith. Huge faith. I mean, she stuck in her whole life. And yet struggled with doubt. That gives me hope. That should give you hope as well. Now, before I go to the last one, the eighth one here, let me, let me make kind of one um, just comment about doubt. I want to be careful that I, you, you don't hear me saying that we don't have this idea or land on this thing, that doubt is a wonderful thing in and of itself, that doubt is an end in and of itself. We, we have to avoid making doubt a way of life, if that makes sense. Um, I've seen individuals small kind of faith communities where doubt is so entrenched that it's, it, it, it's taken over and it is absolutely choked off whatever Christian hope they had. And it just, it looks like cynicism. And I've gotten to places I think in my life too, like that or doubts so much, so much choked off the mission of the church that now it's just kind of apathy. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Whatever. So while we're saying doubt can be useful, it's powerful. We, we don't want to say, I want to live in a place, just a life of doubt. We don't want to do that. So what do we do? What's the answer? I think this is maybe the most important one. Rehearsing the gospel. Um, do you remember what Jesus says when he's asked, how much faith, now faith is the other side of doubt is kind of what we're looking at, how much faith do I need to have? What's the answer he gave? It was a shocking one. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, he goes, that'll do. That'll work. Well, why is that? That doesn't seem to make any sense because isn't, isn't faith and trust a virtue a good thing? Yeah, it is. But the reality is, he says, your faith is a part of you. You're imperfect and broken. Your faith is going to be imperfect and broken. If it relied on you, it would be a, a means of self-salvation. And so your faith doesn't... Don't, and so here's what I'm saying. Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to banish all misgivings, all doubts, in order to meet God. Because no one in Scripture ever did. No one did. See, if, if, if that were the case, you know that would... What that would turn your faith into? It would turn your faith into one more way to earn your own salvation. One more way to merit your acceptance by God. See, working on the quality and the purity of your commitment, it would just become a way for you to earn God's love and to put God in your debt. See, God, I trust you perfectly. Now you have to do A, B, C, and D. Well, that's, that's the exact thing that the Pharisees do. That's, that's being hypocritical. Because the, the strength of your faith is not the important thing. The object of your faith is the important thing. What is your faith in? See, I would suggest that maybe one of the fundamental reasons why we all struggle with doubt is because we think the other option is like too good to be true. <laughs> um, our world lives in the shadows of doubt. It's a dark world. There's, there's, there's corruption. There's there's poverty, there's brokenness. This is a broken world, and it's hard to not give in to that. Especially once you've experienced enough hurt and brokenness. Um, author 
Saul Bellow, in his book Herzog, wrote this. He's speaking of our culture. He says, this generation, this generation thinks that nothing faithful, nothing vulnerable, nothing fragile can be durable or have any true power. He says, death waits for these things as a cement floor waits for a dropping light bulb. He's saying in the end, it's just death. Everybody's light goes out. We just die in a heap. Death wins. And that's just the way it is. See, fairy tales with happy endings, they're just that. They're fairy tales. The real world is a fraud. And it remains a fraud. Cinderella never makes it to the ball. Beauty never wakes up. And the sooner that you kind of come to grips with that, the better. The world is wicked. And in the end, it's a cement floor. And we all land on that. But Jesus says, Mary. I love that. Mary. And everything changes at that moment. That's why, that's why we want the frog to turn into a prince. That's why we want Cinderella to get to the ball. Because there really is a prince. There really is a ball. See, this, and Jesus kind of feels it, this is the greatest love story of all time. Even death itself, Jesus says to Mary, could not keep me from coming back to you. And until you realize that that's not just for Mary, it's for you, that Jesus, even death itself, could not keep me from coming back to you, you will be absent. Doubt will choke your life out. You'll be absolutely miserable. You'll rely on your own strength and it'll, it'll give way and then there'll be self-loathing. Everything will fail. See, we know the end of the story. Think about it this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this illustration and then we're going to take communion here in a minute. Imagine, imagine you come to church on a Saturday night. Broncos are playing. Okay? You set the DVR to record and you go to church because you're a good Christian. And you come home. And uh, you're going to watch it maybe the next day. Your neighbor comes over and goes, man, can you believe that Broncos pulled it out with three seconds left? That's like the greatest comeback in history. And you're just, you're mad, you're angry, you're cursing. I can't believe you, what, you know, what are you doing? And Well, he decides to come in and watch the game with you. So you sit down and you start watching the game. Well, about halfway through, the Broncos start falling behind. And you get upset, you're mad, you stand up, you kick the cat. And your friend goes, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? You know, you know they win in the end. But what's happened? It's nothing that's changed in your knowledge, but your experience of the middle of the game causes you to question, yeah, but can it really happen? Because I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's going to really happen. And so what we have to do, we have to, I have to press in the reality of the gospel to my heart every morning when I wake up. Every time that life seems, it's that shadow of doubt, it's darkness, I have to press in the reality of the gospel that I know the end of the game. So when I experience doubt, and I will, when I experience difficulty, and I go, oh, it just stinks, I don't know if I, and I'm honest about it, I go to God, and I see all these things, and I do it in community, but I still, I still rehearse the gospel. The reality that it's not just Mary, it's Brent. He says, he says your name, and until you realize why Jesus died, it'll never mean anything. It'll never take root in your life. Why he died is for you. For whom he died. He died for you. And so this is how we remind ourselves. This is how we impress it in our lives. This. So our ushers, during these next few minutes, I'm going to ask them to come forward. And you can just stay in your seats. They're going to, they're going to pass out the, the, the elements, the bread, the cup. 
Um, hold them if you would, because I want us to take them together as a, as a community. Let's practice this thing of doing, doing it together. Okay? So just hold on to them. If, if, if you're a follower of Christ, this is an invitation. You don't have to be a part of the denomination or church or anything like that. If you're exploring faith, you can just let these elements pass by. We're glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. Okay? And then we'll come back together here in a second.